turn uh, together in our Bibles to uh, Psalm 118. You want to do the Lord's Prayer? I wondered. (laughs) We'll even record it. (laughs) All right. Will you pray with us? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you, Mary. All right. Now we'll turn in Psalm 118. And if you would stand with me and turn in your Bibles if you are able. As we continue our our, uh, walk through the Psalter, we come to Psalm 118. Hear now the holy, inerrant, infallible, and inspired Word of God. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, because his mercy endureth forever. Let Israel now say that his mercy endureth forever. Let the house of Aaron now say that his mercy endureth forever. Let them now that fear the Lord say that his mercy endureth forever. I called upon the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? The Lord taketh my part with them that help me. Therefore shall I see my desire upon them that hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. All nations compassed me about, but in the name of the Lord will I destroy them. They compassed me about, yea, they compassed me about, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. They compassed me about like bees. They are quenched as the fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. Thou hast thrust sore at me that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song and has become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tabernacles of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord doth valiantly. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord hath chastened me sore, but he hath not given me over unto death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into them, and I will praise the Lord. This gate of the Lord, into which the righteous shall enter, I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me, and art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, which hath showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even unto the horns of the altar. Thou art my God, and I will praise thee. Thou art my God, I will exalt thee. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, 
for his mercy endureth forever. May the Lord grant his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of his most holy word. Pray with me for a minute. Our Heavenly Father, we ask as we come unto thy word that thou wouldst be pleased to send thy spirit that we might understand and behold the wonderful things out of thy law, that we might see Christ in this psalm, that we might know more of thee, and that we might draw unto thee with a sure hope of thy faithfulness to thy covenant. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in our progression through the Psalter in these evening sermons, we've made it to Psalm 118. And as Pastor Welch has reminded us, uh, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118 form what's called the Hillel. The Hillel being called that by the Jewish rabbis because it's a book of praise. It's kind of like a small book within the book, a section of praise psalms that are grouped together. And these psalms were sung during the great Jewish festivals, such as the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Tabernacles. And they, they had a mind a mindset upon them when they sang them of praise and thanksgiving to God for his provision and for the preservation of his people. As we come to Psalm 118, it closes out this Hallel section, these praise psalms, with a crescendo of praise. It rises up with praise and thanksgiving unto God for something particular, his covenant faithfulness toward his people in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. You'll notice that uh, there is no title in this psalm. And there is no author. And it, it's important when we look at Messianic Psalms to try to at least consider um, who the author might be because the setting of the author helps us to understand what we're getting at when it comes to the Messiah here. Um, it's not essential to know who wrote the psalm because within the book of Psalms, we, we believe and we understand from Jewish history that Ezra put together the 150 psalms that we have in our Bible. He did so as a prophet of the Lord, and we do not need to worry about whether they are inspired or not. It's authoritative at this point. And so you don't need to know the author to know of its inspiration. We already have that in its inclusion in the book. However, it is helpful, as I said, to try to have an eye towards who's writing, perhaps, or maybe the setting and the the, 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 maybe the circumstances that are, have arisen to write the psalm. Most commentators believe that David wrote the psalm. Perhaps when we read it, maybe that's where your mind was going. Uh, They believe, like Matthew Henry, Matthew Poole, uh, if you go through the Treasury of David by Spurgeon, most of those commentators all believe that David wrote the psalm after he had weathered the storm of affliction throughout his young life and was settled as king in the kingdom. It appears from the the literature and the writing and the content that it would have been written by a man who had been appointed to some high office in Israel. And so the Davidic theory seems to fit. There's another potential author, though, that I would offer to you today. I kind of lean in this direction, so I guess I'm standing cross grain to some of the the other uh, (laughs) commentators. Another potential author could be King Hezekiah or one of the prophets during his reign. Um, you recall that some, some kings within Judah actually had prophetic office, David, Solomon. There, uh, Hezekiah has written something that's included in Isaiah called the writings of Hezekiah. 
But also keep in mind that all of the kings in Israel had charge over something called the College of the Prophets. And uh, these prophets who would bring inspired uh, messages from God and potentially psalms could write these things at the direction of a king and have it included within the worship song of the church. And you might call it the Song of Hezekiah because it would have been included underneath his reign. Uh, In fact, Hezekiah says in Isaiah 38, uh, after he had been saved from... Now think about this with Hezekiah. Remember, he's the one that had those 185,000 Assyrians surrounding Jerusalem, and the Lord saved him out of that. And he also was near unto death and was given another 15 years of life. After which he writes a praise to God, and we find it in Isaiah 38. And in that he says, Therefore we will sing my songs to the stringed instruments. It's very possible that Psalm 118 is one of the songs of Hezekiah, which was included in the Psalter to be sung as divinely inspired and appointed praise for the church. The purpose, regardless of the author, is intended to sing the thanksgiving and praises of the covenant faithfulness of God. Perhaps it was written on an occasion when the people of God were coming together to the tabernacle or temple in great joy and thanksgiving. One of these momentous occasions in the, in the life of the, of the church. And, that, and it's, maybe it was sung at a time like the rededication of the temple with Ezra. Regardless of, of when they sang it or, it's, or the occasion, this is a messianic song where many of, what the, many of the ideas and the, the praises of the psalmist, they, he writes them as experiences and expressions of his life, which are designed by the Holy Spirit to teach something about the Messiah to come. There's a real person writing about real historical events, but there's something greater that it's describing. Okay? For us, sitting on the New Testament side of the cross we can clearly see Jesus Christ in this psalm. And it's very easy to do it because the New Testament actually takes this psalm and applies it to him. We saw that a little bit in the morning sermon. We'll see that more tonight as we relate this to, in particular, his triumphal entry and his own testimony to its application to him. When we take up this psalm, then, boys and girls, especially, listen, when we take up this psalm, we actually sing of Christ, the Messiah, both by his function and his office and by his name. And we'll see that as we proceed through the exposition. In the psalm, we're going to break it up into four sections. Verses 1 through 4, the psalmist calls the people to praise God for his faithfulness. In verses 5 through 18, the psalmist gives an account of God's faithfulness in his life. In verses 19 through 21, the psalmist declares and commands his right to enter into the house of the Lord. In verses 22 through 27, the voice changes, and it's the people praising, and it's the praises of the priests and the people. And then finally, in verses 28 Through 29, the psalmist gives his final exaltation to God. So beginning in verses 1 through 4, we see the call to praise God for his faithfulness. The psalm begins with an exhortation by the psalmist to give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. And and how does God show his goodness? Because his, his mercy 
is toward us forever. It endures forever. It's an enduring mercy. In this case, the word mercy, we've been dealing with Hebrew and Greek words today. We might as well continue the theme. The, uh, the word translated mercy is the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed. Maybe some of you have heard that word before. Maybe some of you know what it means, but it, it has a particular reference. It's translated mercy, but it really relates to loyalty within a relationship. Loyalty within a relationship. You know what that sounds like to me? Faithfulness to a covenant. Faithfulness to a covenant. The idea contained here is that God has been and will always be loyal to the covenant relationship that he has with his people. The people of God have been drawn into covenant by God through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Christ, we are made partakers of the most undeserved favor, the most rich blessings, and the mercy, the most amazing mercy that can be imagined. And brothers and sisters, there is no biblical way to conceive of God being covenantally faithful except through the Messiah. It is the Messiah, it is through the Messiah that the the faithfulness of God is established. And we're going to see that. It would be unbiblical for us to try to conceive, looking at this psalm, that somehow the most holy God would show mercy on a person out of his own work, out of his own faithfulness, out of his own obedience. It would be unbiblical to think about any form of faithfulness on God's part except in and through the work of the Messiah, the mediator of the covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this section then, the psalmist has this in mind, this covenant faithfulness, and he makes a call to the people to praise. In verse 2 he says, Let Israel now say, this is a particular call to Israel, to the visible church, that we as the visible church are called to offer up to God thanksgivings and praise. He doesn't stop there, though. He ascends. He takes it up a notch. Let the house of Aaron now say, in verse 3, this is a call to the officers of the visible church to lead the people in thanksgiving to God, for that they would describe and show their love and praise and thanksgiving for God's covenantal faithfulness. The people follow the priests. The people follow the officers. And so the psalmist says, if you want the people to praise then the priests must praise. The house of Aaron must praise, and, and so must the officers in today's church. But he doesn't stop there either. He drives even further. Let them that now, let them that now fear the Lord say, verse 4. Now, this is a special call to those who are truly fearers of God. You may have people in the visible church who are there but don't fear God. This is an Old Testament acknowledgement that not all of Israel is Israel. Not all of the people in the Old Testament community truly believed. But the psalmist is saying, if you believe in Christ, if you believe in the Messiah, if you fear the Lord, say, his mercy endureth forever. The difference here is that there are unbelievers within the church, but those who truly fear the Lord are called to special praise. Now, this call extends to us today. This is not just a snapshot in Old Testament history. This is for us. This psalm is for us. Hasn't God shown to us a marvelous mercy in his faithfulness to us? 
Are you thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ and all of the blessings that become ours in him through covenant with our God? If you are, then you must take up the praise of God. You must offer to him the sacrifices of thanksgiving because his mercy is great toward us and it endures forever. From there, having called the people to praise, the psalmist gives them reasons to praise by accounting God's faithfulness to him in verses 5 through 18. The reasons that he gives begin in verses 5 through 9 by showing, number one, that in God's covenantal faithfulness, he's on our side. He is on our side. Um, the God, God has set him in a large place. The Lord is on my side in verse 6. God is not, listen, God is not grudging in his faithfulness. He is not lax. He doesn't hold back. In fact, he's willing and he takes the side of his people with joy and with strength and with gusto. He willingly sets the psalmist in a large and safe place. He takes the part of of his people in the battle in verse 7, meaning that he fights with us. He takes our part. He takes our side in the battle. What is there to fear at that point? When the Almighty God, think of this, when the Almighty God, the only God, the most supreme and ultimate being of all the universe, the creator of the heaven and the earth, is on your side, what is there to fear? What enemy could possibly harm you if God is on your side? When God is on your side, why would we ever put our true and entire confidence in men? We may need to trust friends, and there's nothing wrong with having a faithful friend or a faithful government, but do we ever put our stock in store and our real, real, true, root, deep trust in them? No. In verses 8 through 9, we see that the faithfulness of the Lord is the true comfort in affliction. Oh, it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in in men. In the midst of affliction, in the midst of difficulty, when enemies, spiritual or physical, surround us, oh, brothers and sisters, it is not the might of men or princes or armies that brings comfort to our soul. It is the Lord Jesus Christ Amen. and God our Father in Christ. Now, though David may have written this, we always read these messianic psalms with an understanding of Christ to come. The greater David the greater psalmist, the greater Hezekiah, maybe. When the psalmist speaks, he often speaks as the Messiah. He takes the voice of the Messiah into his mouth. So in this place, think now of our Lord. We just read in Luke a few weeks ago about singing a hymn and going out to the Mount of Olives. And we believe that it was Psalm 113 through Psalm 118 that was sung that night before they went out on the Mount of Olives. So in this place, think of our Lord singing this psalm on the night in which he was betrayed. Think of the confidence which it reminded him of when he was in agony in, on that mountain, praying unto the Lord. Was this not a comfort for him to know that the Lord is on my side? Amen. Think of that understanding with which he sang. There was no Judas who could truly touch him. No Herod that could truly harm him, and no Pilate that could destroy him. They couldn't truly touch him, for the Lord was on his side. Our Lord Jesus, indeed, 
uh, and, and further demonstrated covenant faithfulness by going to the cross, right? By willingly submitting to that. And he did so knowing that God, his father, was on his side. When we sing this psalm, we need to think of how God was on the side of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to think about how God the Father had decreed his victory over sin and death from before the foundation of the world. And we need to think about how Christ secured that victory and is on our side. We also sing, knowing that Christ has taken up our side, has gone to the cross for us. He has, as Yahweh is salvation, identified himself with us. We are his people, and so he went to the cross for us. He has taken our part in, in that judgment that we should have received, something we never could have taken up and satisfied. There's no amount of punishment that could truly satisfy God's wrath against our sin. And he's done it because he is faithful to his covenant. Further, verses 10 through 18 are another element of this recounting of a reason why we should praise God, it's because the victory of the Lord. The psalmist says he had been surrounded by his enemies, by a vast and horrible enemy, yet in the name of the Lord they are destroyed. What does the name of the Lord here refer to? It's his function. He is the sovereign ruler. No one can defeat him. His name is his function, and his name is conqueror. It's victor. And the Lord has conquered all of his and our enemies. The psalmist describes here that the, to, to engage in the battle with the Lord on our side is to guarantee victory. Just think about that. To engage in the battle with the Lord on our side, it's impossible to lose. The Lord doesn't lose. He's not a loser. He's a winner. Though the psalmist is relating his history, it most certainly describes the work of the Messiah here as well. Was not Jesus Christ surrounded by enemies on every side as, as he was walking through this life? Were not horrible enemies coming against him throughout his ministry? Yet defeat was never a possibility because God is faithful to his covenant. Having decreed that the people of God would be saved through the covenant of grace, there was no possibility that they would not be. And having decreed that Jesus Christ would go to that cross and bear those sins, there was no possibility that he wouldn't. Because God had promised the victory was sure. The name of the Lord is salvation, and it ensures the victory over sin and death itself. Though the enemies would thrust sore or violently, it's described as swarming as bees to sting the enemies of sin, Satan, the world, the flesh, hell. They are all defeated foes to those who are in covenant with God through Christ Jesus. <coughs> And brothers and sisters, isn't it at the name of Christ Jesus the Lord that every knee bows and every tongue confesses? When we take this psalm upon our lips, we are indeed singing of the victory of Christ the Lord. You know, in verse 14, 
we actually take the name of Jesus upon our lips in praise. As we saw this morning in verse 14, the Lord is my strength and song and has become my salvation. When you bring Lord and salvation together, you have Yahushua. Yahweh is salvation. We have that functional name of Jesus. And this victory is full of joy. And in verse 15, it extends to all who are righteous or all who are made righteous in Jesus Christ. There is no righteousness apart from from mankind, apart from Christ. And here we find in verse 15, the joy of salvation in the tents of the righteous. You know what that means? It means it's in your home. It follows you into your home. It follows you into your life. That the joy of the salvation of the Lord is like an effervescent, uh, uh, just a, a beautifying and pleasant thing that redounds to joy in your life. It extends even into the tents of the righteous, the homes of those who are united to Christ by faith. And how is this victory won? Well, we see that in verse 15, verses 15 and 16 as well. By the right hand of the Lord. When you see this designation, right hand of the Lord, you must think of our Redeemer. You must think of our Redeemer. Who is it who took on human nature and accomplished the divine plan of redemption? The Lord Jesus Christ. That idea of the right arm of the Lord is that arm that goes forth to work to act, to wield a sword, to do, to do things, right? And then where does Christ ascend? Where is he today? He's at the right hand of God the Father. And didn't we see that this morning in Acts chapter 2? This is proven by Peter that Jesus of Nazareth has been made Lord and Christ and has ascended and sits at the right hand of God the Father. Mm-hmm. To sing this psalm then, is to sing of the redemption purchased by Christ, the very right hand of the Lord, the one who has defeated the enemy. Further, in verses 17 to 18, we see a prophetic declaration of the death and resurrection of Christ. Just as the psalmist was close unto death, but would live, the Lord Jesus Christ did actually die for our sins, but did not stay dead. Jesus Christ has borne the severe chastening of the Lord on behalf of his people. This is a role that he serves and fulfills as Savior and Messiah. And why has Christ borne it? Why did he suffer unto death? Because God is faithful to his covenant promise. He bore it, but it did not consume him. He was not given over to death or corruption. Jesus Christ's divine nature upheld his human nature so that he was not held in death. Death could not hold him. Psalm 16 says the Holy One would not see corruption but rose again. And what does this testify to? The truth that he is both Lord and Christ. To take this psalm upon our lips then is to sing specifically about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Moving from that account of why we should praise because of the history of the psalmist and looking at the Messiah through him, we move in verses 19 to 21 to the psalmist commanding a right to enter into the house of the Lord. 
In this section, we see what the victory of Christ has procured. He has a right to enter into the holy place, for by his sacrifice and resurrection, he is both Lord and Christ. In this section, we continue in the voice of the psalmist, but we hear the voice of the Messiah. We hear the Lord Jesus, as it were, standing at the gate of righteousness and saying, open it up unto me, commanding that it be open. Do you remember what was around the tabernacle and temple, that fence with that gate in it? That fence kept out those who did not belong in that holy place, And in that fence, you'd walk through that fence, you came to that fence, and the first thing you saw was an altar because you didn't come through the gate without a sacrifice. No mere man in his own righteousness could enter through that gate, and no one could enter without a sacrifice. But the psalmist could enter into that gate because of Christ. He was his righteousness. And that sacrifice that he would bring meant something then that his blood had covered his sins. The Lord Jesus Christ, however, not like the psalmist, enters in because he is the sacrifice. He's the only one who has a right to enter on his own. He's the only one who can command entry because it's his gate and because he has offered himself the perfect sacrifice. He is the only one The Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who is holy in and of himself and can enter into that gate. So this turns then in in verse 21 to some personal praise from this psalmist for this thing that is just marvelous. I will praise thee for thou hast heard me and art become my salvation. The psalmist of the Old Testament could look forward to the day of the Messiah with hope and joy and see that God had provided a way of communion with him. Christ Jesus has become my salvation, he says. That's personal. Is it personal for you? Has the Lord Jesus Christ become your salvation? His death and resurrection have procured salvation for you if you believe upon him. In this praise, again, we see the covenant faithfulness of God. He has become our salvation. He has done it. It is finished. He is faithful to make Christ's righteousness avail for us. This being true, what else could we do but join the psalmist in praise and thanksgiving? Now in verses 22 through 27, the the voice changes The words aren't in the voice of the psalmist or the Messiah here at this point. The voice becomes the praises of the priests and the people. The song is taken up by the priests. It's a new voice and it's a new perspective, a different look, a different theme. Whereas the preceding section has described the faithfulness of God, now it's the people's view of that faithfulness that comes into play. The people here and the priests are looking upon the Messiah as the one by whom God's covenant faithfulness is brought to them. We heard about the Messiah bringing that salvation, about being covenantally faithful, and now the people praise God for it comes to them. And so in this song of the people comes a prophecy of the Messiah to come. The prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we know that to be certainly true because the New Testament says that it is. 
We're going to draw that out. In verses 22, in verse 22a, the first half of 22, the stone which the builders refused has, has become the headstone of the corner. That section, the stone which the builders refused, that's the humiliation of the Messiah. That's the prophecy of Christ's humiliation. He would be rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The pathway of the Messiah would be one of suffering and humiliation. Before Christ would be exalted, what? He would be humbled and brought low. Notice in this prophecy who rejects him. It's the builders. Do you remember how Paul calls the ministers of the word builders in 1 Corinthians 3? Who was it that rejected Christ? The religious establishment. Those officers in the visible church of Christ in the Old Testament were the ones who would reject him. The ones who ought to have been ministering on his behalf were the ones that rejected Christ the Messiah. And Jesus applies this to himself in the parable of the vineyard. In fact, he references this very verse when he describes those husbandmen which kill the son of the vineyard owner. They throw out all the servants and they eventually kill the son. Jesus applies that to the religious leaders of his day, saying he is the stone that the builders rejected. And he points his finger right at that religious establishment. But it doesn't stop there, right? The the Messiah will be humbled and humiliated, rejected of men. But in 22b, that second half, into 23, we see the exaltation of the Messiah. The Right? It's the, the stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. For our Lord Jesus Christ, exaltation did come after humiliation. The establishment of the Messiah as the chief cornerstone upon which all true religion is built is prophesied here. Paul himself refers to this passage in Ephesians 2. In, verse, in verses 19 through 22, when he describes the building up of the church upon Christ, he says, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. This is referred to in Psalm 118 as the Lord's doing. The word Lord there is Yahweh. And that remember from this morning's sermon that Yahweh has that, it pertains to that covenant faithfulness of God. This is the exaltation of Christ. This is the one unto whom we come, as Peter said, as unto a living stone, disallowed of men, but chosen of God and precious. We see here as well the continual description of God's covenantal faithfulness in setting up Christ as the sure foundation. His church is maintained through every storm, through all weather. How? Through a sure foundation. It will not crumble. It will not fall apart. In verses 24 through 26, we see the triumph of the Messiah. The exaltation of the Christ, the Messiah, results in hopeful praise on the people In verse 24, the Redeemer is the foundation of God's mercy. Therefore, this is the day which the Lord has made, and we will rejoice in it. This is not just a regular celebration day. 
this is a triumph day. This is a day of atonement. This is a day of salvation. This is a day of reconciliation. This is a day where all the application of all the promises that are yes and amen in Jesus Christ are fulfilled upon the people of God. This is marvelous in our eyes. The exalted king is coming in victory. He's coming. And today is the day of victory. That's what we're hearing in this prophecy. And brothers and sisters, this is exactly what is described in Matthew 21 and in Luke and in John at the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. Particularly as the people take up Psalm 118 in their mouths and sing it unto him. They proclaim it unto him as he comes into the city riding on that colt. Verse 25 is in fact quoted in Matthew 21, 9 and John 12, 13. But you may not have recognized it. If you, or if you, if you take a moment and turn to uh, Matthew 21, 9 or to John 12, 13, you're going to see a word there that, has, that is left in the Hebrew. Hosanna. Hosanna. You know what that word means? Verse 25. Save now. Save now. They're quoting to Christ from Psalm 118. The people in Jerusalem saw the king coming and cried unto him, Hosanna! Save now. This is the proper cry of a people for their Savior, isn't it? You're my Savior. Save now. Although God's mercy endures forever, though he is faithful to his covenant promise It is only through the King of Kings and Lord of Lords that any of this is certain, that any of it is certain through the Lord Jesus Christ. The the accounts of the triumphal entry continue to describe the people crying out in verse 26, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Is not this a declaration of the coming and triumph of Christ? He is the right hand of the Lord which has gained the victory for the people. And we, when we take up this psalm and sing it, along with the people of Jerusalem, cry out in praise at the salvation of our God, which is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verse 27, we're ramping up it. You can just hear it crescendoing here in praise and triumph. It culminates in a response to this king, to this victory, in a burnt offering and in a sacrifice of praise. The praise of the people for the victory of the Messiah climaxes in this offering in verse 27. God has shined the light of his countenance upon the people, and the response is to offer those sacrifices which God delights in and requires. The Old Testament burnt offering was offered on many occasions. Burnt offerings were made every day. In the morning and the evening, there was an additional burnt offering that was offered up each Sabbath day. There was an offering at the beginning of each month at the celebration of the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. There was a, there was a burnt offering with the, new, the grain offering at the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, the celebration of the new moon. These celebrations, these feasts that celebrated the victory and the salvation of the Lord, they culminated or had in them the element of burnt offering. Here, this sacrifice is offered unto God in praise and thanksgiving, and it pictures the sacrifice of Christ 
which procures all of the mercy, all of the covenant faithfulness of Christ for us. Notice, it's the people who are the ones calling for the sacrifice. Why is it? It's because only, they know this, only through the shedding of blood is there remission of sins. They know they need a sacrifice. They know they, know they need that sacrifice. And it's only through Christ's death that we are kept in covenant with God. There's one further connection with the triumphal entry that we can't miss. John and Matthew, in the days leading up to the Passover and the, and the Last Supper, describe that Jesus entered into Jerusalem five days before the Passover. Five days. Did you know that Moses commanded the people in Exodus chapter 12 that the Passover lamb be selected Five days before it's sacrificed. Five days. It's no coincidence that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb, which every Passover lamb pictured, which every burnt offering pointed to, presented himself in Jerusalem five days prior to his sacrifice. And it's no coincidence that the people sang this song as he rode into town on that colt. He is the sacrifice which is bound to the altar. And he is the one whose sacrifice is pleasing unto God. We spoke of no one entering the gates of righteousness without a sacrifice. But Jesus Christ can command the opening of those gates because he is the one who was bound to the altar. He's the sacrifice. Doesn't that put an interesting perspective on the Lord singing this psalm in the night in which he was betrayed. He's singing of his own accomplishment of that victory for you and for me through his death. Finally, in the New Testament, we no longer offer animal sacrifices or burnt offerings, but we do offer sacrifices in Hebrews 13, 15, we are told to offer the sacrifices of praise. Christ has been sacrificed once. And so when we reflect on this Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ sacrificed for us, we can only but offer those sacrifices of praise unto him. He promised to draw us into covenant. He promised to make, a, make us righteous before God. He promised to reconcile us to him, and he did so. And Psalm 118 shows us that. Then finally, in, Psalm, in verses 28 through 29, the psalmist offers a final exaltation unto God. It's no wonder that the psalmist concludes where he began. Right? Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. He takes up the song again. Right? He, the psalmist takes the song out of the mouth of the people. He takes it back to himself and he says that I own the God of the covenant of grace for myself. And I praise this God for his mercy endures forever. He is my God and I will praise him for his mercy endures forever. Do you see the covenant of faith and covenantal faithfulness of God in this psalm? I hope you do. It is only through Christ 
the Messiah, the one pictured in the psalm, the one talked about in the psalm, the one described in the psalm in the New Testament. It's only through Christ Jesus that we obtain that mercy, that hesed, that covenant faithfulness. And with him and with that faithfulness comes all of the blessings of God to us. Do you see Christ in this psalm? It speaks of him. It was applied to him. It praises him. It prophesied of him. Let us see this Savior in this song. Let us see him as our Savior. And let us see him as the one who procures and establishes God's mercy to us. And let us therefore take up his name in thankful praise. For the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. Amen. Let us pray. O Almighty God, we do thank Thee for the Lord Jesus Christ and for Thy covenant faithfulness. Our Father, Thou art uh, a covenant God and has revealed Thyself to be faithful to Thy covenant. Thou hast promised and Thou hast executed on Thy promise through the Lord Jesus. All those things that have been promised to us are yes and amen in Him. And Father, we cry out to Thee that we might trust this Christ that we might find our victory in him. We thank thee that thou art on our side. We have nothing to fear, for Christ is our sure defense and victory. We pray, Father, that these would not just be passing sentiments or emotional responses, but that these would be the truths by which we live our life because we are established in Jesus Christ. We ask for thy mercy, and we, we praise thee, O God, for it endures forever. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.